In today's episode, we talk about how we might have lost sight of the biblical approach to being a Christian and how we can reclaim it. You know, I am I'm so mad right now. You know, I tried to have a respectful conversation with my alarm clock this morning, but it just went off on me. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 90, 90 episodes. That's the granite anniversary. If any of you out there have been married for 90 years, I don't know how that happens. And if you end up hating today's episode, at least you learned something. 90 years, the granite or the stone anniversary. Who knew? Welcome to the Man of Food for Thought podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not yet done so, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. And the highest compliment you can pay me is to share this episode with a friend, especially on social media. Tag us at Man of Food for Thought on Instagram. That is where we are active. And visit our website at manafoodforthought or www.manafoodforthought.com. And you can see our blogs. Um, you can support us as a Patreon member for as little as a dollar a month. You get perks when those eventually come together. And yeah, some good stuff. But uh, let's get into our peak pit and plug for this week. Great episode in store. I'm super excited. So uh, the peak is our house is finished. The repairs are done. It is cleaned. The uh, painters who've been painting from the HOA, they're painting the exterior, they're almost done. So we are moving home this weekend. I'm recording this on a Tuesday. So by the time this episode comes out, um, we'll either be moving home that day or have already moved home. So as you're listening to this, pray that all is going well or has gone well, that my body doesn't physically collapse from trying to move everything and that Erica doesn't collapse from trying to corral the two children while we're doing all of this. Um, but yes, that is a very, very high point. But that leads into my pit, my low point, is that I have just, I've been running on empty lately. You know, I've just been done. Like, I just, you ever feel like you just want, like, you just want life to kind of, like, go away for a little bit? Like, go, like, take a vacation and then, like, let you just kind of recharge in a cave by yourself and then life can come back and then you can get back in the, the, the thick of it? That's how I felt for, like, the past week. And I've been super stressed. I've had stress pains and inflammation manifesting all over my body and my side, my, my lower back, um, my foot, both my hands, um, especially my right hand. I couldn't like grab anything with my right hand, which has happened to me a couple times before. Um, so that's crazy. We're still potty trading Hannah. Levi has discovered screaming. I highly suspect he learned it from his sister. So it's just madness over here, you know, but uh, pray for us because God is good and uh, we'll get through it. Uh, my plug this week, I believe I mentioned this in the last episode, but I just finished this book, Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. He's an evangelical pastor. Um, he's pastored a couple different churches in California and in between them, he was a, him and his family moved to China to kind of be missionaries over there. Um, he's just got a, a great uh, heart and a great story. And this book is very, very um, moving and I think very appropriate for all Christian churches. It's written from an evangelical perspective, obviously, but uh, I think we can glean a lot as Catholics from it. And so um, I highly recommend it, Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. It's more so directed to people in charge of parishes, but I think just everyday Christians can get a lot from it. And so I highly encourage you to check it out. But the, the, the sentence that I think really encapsulates the book and where I want to kind of expand upon what I received from it and what can, we can benefit from in living out our relationship with Jesus and our faith is, is a quote from page 140. 
this one sentence. He says, we have created a culture of non-committal Christianity that avoids suffering. We have created a culture of non-committal Christianity that avoids suffering. In other words, that seeks comfort. And in scripture, so much of what they do is not at all what we do and worry about today um, as as parishes, uh, as, as church. Um, you know, he kind of... Um, I don't know, he kind of starts the book with this premise that, you know, imagine you are trapped on a desert island and you find the Bible and you've never heard of Christianity, you've never been to a church, you've never met a Christian before, and you read the Bible and the New Testament, what would your image of Christianity look like? Like, what would you expect a Christian to be like? What would you expect church to be? And does that compare to what we do? And... The long and short of it is like, not really, you know, um, Catholics, we have, we, we are rooted in a lot of the traditions and the hierarchy and the sacramental nature of the New Testament, but we've lost, I think the flair and the, uh, the, the focus. So, so much of what they do is about like preaching the word, keeping each other accountable in the areas of morality, unity, theology, creating a community that serves all the people and they love each other in radical ways. You rarely hear them talking about, you know, sacramental preparation. Not to downplay the sacraments because it's clear in the time of the early church, the sacramental life did what it was supposed to do. It compelled people into deeper relationship with God and one another. There wasn't this box checking mentality. There wasn't this long list of things that needed to be accomplished that exhaust you so you can finally be released by your preparation process and then supposed to muster up the energy to commit to even more. And it just reminds me of, um, you know, this box checking mentality that we've developed as a church reminds me of the story from Acts chapter 5, um, the story of Ananias and his wife, uh, Sapphira. Um, and so it's, this is Acts chapter 5. A man named Ananias, however, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Ananias retained for himself, with his wife's knowledge, some of the purchase price, took the remainder, and put it at the feet of the apostles. So he's withholding something he's not supposed to here. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart so that you lied to the Holy Spirit and retained part of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And when it was sold, was it still not under your control? Why did you contrive this deed? You have lied to human beings, not to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, listen to this. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Homie died, you guys. And we continue. The young men came and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, unaware of what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me, did you sell the land for this amount? She answered, yes, for that amount. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the footsteps of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. At once, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men entered and found her dead, so they, uh, the young men entered and found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, that sounds crazy, right? Like two people lie to Peter and they just drop dead. But the reality here is like the the church was the social structure 
of this community. Like they provided for each other's needs. And these two people, Ananias and Sapphira, they're being selfish. They're withholding some of that provision. And they're just kind of doing the bare minimum. They're checking the box. They're saying, okay, we gave some of this money to the church. They're not really seeing the heart of the matter. And I think that's something that we've lost sight of. Like we show up, do we show up to worship? Do we show up to give our all? Or do we just kind of show up to go through the motions? Do we prioritize um, other things that might be unnecessary in our faith? So, for instance, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking about, you know, um, all these people are coming to him and saying, I want to follow you. Um, And they say this in verse 57. uh, Someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, is verse 57 of Luke 9. And it continues, Jesus answers him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And to another, he said, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus answered him, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. To him, Jesus said, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this sounds like it might be kind of harsh, like, wow, Jesus is saying, like, you're not going to have a home. You can't go bury your father. You can't go say bye to your family. Well, what, what Jesus is getting at here is not this heartless commitment, but he's saying, look, if you're so worried about what you're leaving behind, you're not ready to commit. And so that causes me to ask, and I hope you ask this question of yourself, what is holding you back from authentically following Jesus? Some things are obstacles. Some things are really in the way. Maybe there's a sin, a habit, a preconceived notion, selfishness, pride, whatever it is. But other things are substitutions. You know, we think we're following Jesus because we're doing X, because we're doing certain Catholic things. But being a Christian is about living a life that looks biblical, that looks like the early church. It's not just about like being a member, you know? Is that in the New Testament? Like Francis Chan says this in his book. He kind of creates this funny scenario like where Peter and Paul are like, hey, where are you going to church next Sunday? Oh, I'm going to, you know, so-and-so church because they have great childcare and a great singles ministry. It's like, no, they don't talk like that. Like we are the church and they knew that at the time. Even though they had these house churches springing up, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go do Sabbath in Rome next week. It's going to be great. It's just like wherever I am, there is the church. We are not members of one. We are the church. This isn't a one hour a week mentality or within the four walls of a building mentality. This is a life, a livelihood. This is who we are. Is it one hour a week or our whole life? In John 17, Francis Chan points this out in his book as well. um, Jesus says this, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them as you loved me. Basically, that they will know you by your love. So do others know you by your love? If someone were to say, oh, who is a loving person? Who's a loving follower of Jesus Christ? would you immediately come to mind? Or what is a community, a church that is specifically known for how they love other people? Like any denomination, do you, can you think off the top of your head, any denomination 
of a church that they are specifically known publicly for how they love God and how they love one another because of the way they live that out. I can't think of one. I mean, the only one that I, I have very minimal knowledge of this church, but, um, and I don't know the name of it, but Father Josh Johnson's parish in, I think, the Diocese of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, he does a ton of different, um, you know, social and, and um, um, ministries to the poor, ministries to, you know, just very, very good kind of perspective at that type of thing, really radically loving people. Um, but, you know, I don't know too many details about what he does. I've just, I've, I've heard it talked about so many times, but that's the only thing that I think maybe comes close. But your everyday parish, your everyday mass experience, like would a stranger walk in and say like, wow, these people like really love each other, you know? I mean, it looks like we're kind of like not trying to make eye contact with each other, you know, most times, um, which is sad because now the eyes are the thing you can, uh, the only thing you can see at mass, right? And so like we're just in complete avoidance and emotional separation. And that brings us also to like this idea, like what do we show up to church for? We cannot show up to be entertained, it's not what this was about. Um, do we show up to serve? You know, I think the the divine renovation model, which is a, a ministry movement, their um, one of their mottos is "see a need, fill a need." That should be the motto of every single Christian when they show up at church, every single Catholic when they show up at Mass. Not, okay, is the music going to be good? Is the homily going to be relevant? Am I going to feel good about this? Is it going to be inspiring? No. Where is there a need and how can I fill it? How can I serve? How can I give? How can we as a community come together to provide for one another's needs? That is a biblical church. That is a biblical church. And so we point back to that desert island mentality. What would you expect if you read the Bible in its entirety? What would you expect church to be like? Take out the, you know, cultural things like the dietary laws, but just like the way that they live and worship, what they prioritize and how they live out the faith. Does this match our current experience? I would be very surprised if people were honestly able to say yes to that. Uh, I'm not trying to be critical here. I feel like I'm often very critical, but I'm really trying to like put a positive, encouraging, like, hey, let's do this. Like, let's get back to the core, the most positive, most beautiful thing, which is that like we have a radically beautiful opportunity to be in relationship with the God of the universe, to worship him. Like, that's incredible. Why are we throwing that away for, or what does it look like we're throwing that away for a box checking mentality or just showing up to be entertained, to hear mass and not participate in mass? Um, you know, in... In Western countries, like this is this is not what Catholic Christianity and what church look like. Um, you know, in Asian countries, um, Africa, Middle East, that's a different story. But I think we have a problem. If each one of us, though, start to live more biblically and vocalize a need for our churches to look more biblical, it can begin to happen again. It's happening in those churches across the world where they're willing to show up and, and worship underground, where they will fight persecution and even death so that they can get to Mass. We have much to learn from them. I think we think, you know, first world Western countries are, you know, the civilized and the most progressive of, of um, societies. I think in many ways, especially spiritually, there's a regressive mentality that we, we've lost. Our, our history, our tradition, our, I don't know, our mojo when it comes to these things. So if you don't know immediately what to do to start, um, then I think you need to defamiliarize yourself with what the church was supposed to be and what following Jesus looked like by diving into the word. You may have already this kind of preconceived notion that, f- that fits into this kind of cookie cutter life of Christianity that you're trying to emulate. 
And if it doesn't match up to kind of what, what I'm talking about here, then I think we really need to call it into question. We need to be diving into the word. We need to be seeing like, what did it look like? What was it like to be a disciple at that time? What is church meant to be? And yes, the world has changed, but the core should be the same. And I think we've We've changed too much of our mentality. So I'm not talking about doctrinal shifts. I'm not talking, you know, I'm talking just like a mentality. Like, what do we prioritize? How do we participate in our faith in mass? How are we community? And I think, I think if the early church showed up, time traveled 2000 years into the future, they would be surprised at how many people, instead of being part of the community and feel provided for, feel excluded and set aside and i think we would they would see a a very problematic individualistic experience of faith a very comfortable faith a very backseat faith that is completely antithetical to their experience so we need to dive into the word we need to dive into things like the gospel of mark and acts of the apostles and we throw some of those new testament letters in too but those books in particular need to give us a sense of what it looked like at this time and to pray for us i want to invoke the intercession of an awesome saint saint philip the evangelist so there's philip the apostle this is not him this is actually one of the seven deacons who are chosen in Acts of the Apostles chapter 6. His feast day is on October 11th, and he is a Greek name, so he's probably a Hellenist Christian, and that's probably why he was chosen to be one of these seven deacons, because they were chosen to make sure that the Hellenist widows were being provided for, and the poor of that community were being provided for. Um, and so he's listed second to uh, Stephen in that list. Stephen is is described as a man filled with faith in the Holy Spirit. He's the first martyr. He was a very, obviously, saintly person um, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Um, and so Peter, or Philip being listed second is significant. That means, like, second to Stephen, he was, you know, the next best. Um, and that's a very common of lists, like the list of the apostles. Peter is always listed first. Judas is always listed last. And the first four, or at least first three or four, are always Peter, James, and John, and Andrew sometimes. So like the three most important are always there. So there's a sequence to this. So Philip, the deacon or Philip, the evangelist, he's an important guy. And you can read about him specifically in Acts of the Apostles chapter eight. That's where he really shines. Um, In Acts chapter eight, he's in Samaria and he goes and he preaches the word there. He proclaims the Messiah to them. And it says in verse six, uh, chapter eight, verse six, with one accord, the crowds paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard it and saw the signs he was doing. For unclean spirits crying out in a loud voice came out of many possessed people, and many paralyzed and crippled people were cured. There was great joy in that city. Now, a guy named Simon comes along. He's a magician, um, and that tends to mean like kind of pagan practices or black magic, like very thing, things that could potentially be associated with kind of satanic or paganistic practices. And he comes um, to Philip. And he hears about this and he's like, I I want to know how to do this. Um, I want to know what's going on here. Um, He offers money and he says, give me this power that you have too. But Philip doesn't have it. It's like, this is not a trick, you know? Well, actually what happens, the apostles come and they lay hands on people and basically the equivalent of giving them the sacrament of confirmation, the Holy Spirit comes. And then Simon says like, Hey, I want this power. This was all instigated by Philip the deacon. 
All because he goes somewhere new, he proclaims Jesus, and the community comes and provides for the need. The apostles come, lay hands on them. And it's not about what Simon wants. It's about taking this for selfish reasons. It's not about show up, see something cool, and just receive, 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 take, take, take. It's no, see a need, fill a need, serve the community, be part of it. Philip later um, encounters uh, an Ethiopian, and he... um, he finds this Ethiopian, a eunuch, who's a court official of the queen of, um, of Ethiopia, uh, whose name is Candace. I find that very interesting um, because, you know, every Candace I've ever known is just like a super white European person. But this is the queen of Ethiopia, so it's just interesting. Um, and he's this Ethiopian eunuch is in charge of her treasury, but he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he's returning home. And um, the Lord tells, or the Spirit tells Philip to go up and join the chariot. And he hears um, the eunuch reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asks, like, do you know what you're reading? And he's like, how can I unless someone teaches me? So he invites Philip to come in and Philip teaches him. He provides. Um, and it's a difficult verse he's interpreting. And he, um, he interprets it for him. And uh, basically gives him the good news of Jesus Christ, proclaims Jesus to him. And the guy just asks to be baptized. And so Philip and him stop um, at a well or at an area of water, and he's baptized right there. And when he comes out, the Spirit sweeps Philip off like miles and miles and miles away um, to um, um, Azotus, which is an area in like northern northern Israel, like miles away. Um, so he can go serve there. So he can go uh, provide for needs. And I, I, I was inspired to think of Philip the deacon because... I think about how we like focus so much on sacramental preparation and how here like Philip just shows up, preaches the word, the apostles come, lay hands and confirm everybody. He shows up where the spirit leads him. He has one conversation with this guy who knows the scripture a little bit and baptizes him right there. Like it's not this long drawn out process because the core of who we are is about worship and community, unity, providing for the needs of the community and radically loving one another. Uh, The other time Philip appears um, is in Acts chapter 21, and Paul and Luke are in Caesarea, that town where uh, Philip is heading after his um, stories in Acts chapter 8. And Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, and then he, um, or no, he, sorry, he encounters Philip, and then Philip prophesies that Paul is going to be arrested in Jerusalem. Um, And Philip introduces him to his four daughters who are all virgins and all prophets. Like, talk about dad of the year right there. Like, man. Um, He preaches to them. He practices hospitality, allows them to stay with them. He shares the truth. He's willing to prophesy even if it's difficult. And he's a witness everywhere he goes, even in his own family. So when you go to a new place, I don't know, I just, when you go to a new place, do you do what Paul does? Like, do you look up the Catholic Church and you treat it like, oh, they're going to provide for my needs, obviously. Like, they're going to get me oriented to this new place. If I have anything that I need, they'll be able to provide. Like, I don't think we operate like that anymore, and we should. Um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, churches, church was happening here in the home because it wasn't a building to these people. It was a, a community. It was a people who, as scripture says in Acts chapter 2, they had everything in common. In, in you know, 242 verse through 47, they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles and to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. All came upon everyone. Many signs and wonders were done through the apostles and all believed. They were together and had all things in common. They would sell their property and possessions, divide them among 
all according to each one's need, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple area and to breaking bread in their homes. They ate meals with exultation and sincerity of heart, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It's no wonder the church rapidly grew. Like that, that type of life sounds so amazing to me. Does it not to you? Like, and I think it's doable in our modern culture. Yes, we're going to have to give up certain societal norms or expectations or not kind of chase after the hustle of Western society and getting as much as I can get. It's going to be a radical reversal of that prioritization that our world has made. But that kind of radical giving and radical community and, you know, I don't know, I just desire a home one day that, you know, is big enough to be kind of like this open door policy where people can come in and celebrate and be invited into an experience of faith where they can have a meal, where they can stay if they need to, where they can um, be invited to be creative, to experience God, to have deep conversations. And I don't know, I just, I think we've lost that, you know, that is church, you know, and that everyone helps provide for one another. We all contribute, you know. I I miss those moments in my, in my grandma's house growing up. You know, everyone showed up. Everyone was in the kitchen. Everyone was, you know, helping set up for meals. And we were there for every single holiday. Like, even in significant holidays sometimes. I feel like, like, Columbus Day, we probably went over to my grandma's. Like, that, it was just part of the community of the family. And But when my grandma and grandpa died... Um, that didn't happen anymore. It turned into kind of an annual tradition where we all come together and one kind of main figure in the family, one of the main siblings um, of my grandma and grandpa, they'll kind of be in charge of the party and the people will show up. But, you know, and there's still people helping and all, obviously all of that. But it's, I don't know, I just miss that. And I think part of me misses that because that's the church, the community experience that I crave, that we're all designed for, that Jesus promised us. And so we need to dive back into the word to read things like Mark and Acts of the Apostles and all the other Gospels and the letters in the New Testament and and really develop a longing for church that looks like that and then start to put into practice those types of things. Like imagine if every single Christian, every time they went to Mass, you know, stood up and said, you know, oh, is there anything that is needed? You know, everyone was being trained in liturgical ministries. And then anytime a new person entered the community, someone went and greeted them, sat with them for mass, made sure they knew where everything was, and then invited them out to brunch after and got to know them and help them get integrated into the community. Like, imagine a community like that, you know, and that treated everyone who came in the door that way. I'm not talking about just like the average churchgoer who's coming to a new town, but I'm talking about the homeless person off the street the person who feels out of place, um, the person who doesn't know that they're the beloved of God, people who are struggling, um, people who feel like they might not be welcome there, like people who are divorced or separated or LGBTQ plus communities, um, that they come into our church and they feel welcomed and loved and accepted and know that they're the beloved of God. And they feel compelled to allow that love to change them and draw them deeper into relationship with Jesus. That is it. just a church that I desire, a church I would love to be a part of and attend. And I, I kind of envy Protestant churches because they can just kind of start these things in their homes. And yes, we have the benefit of, you know, the authority that God gave us in the apostles through our bishops and priests, but we can't, I think like we can't get so confined to certain structures 
you know, we need we need what Jesus gave us, but we we don't need to add on more, and we can tweak the way we do things while keeping that structure intact. And so, a lot of that depends, I think, on lay people. Yes, direction could be given from spirit-led pastors and bishops, but they're so tapped out already doing all these other, you know, box checking kind of things, you know, and it's no fault of their own. It's just kind of the system we've created and a lot of the things that lay people demand that are unnecessary. So I don't know. I just, let's ask for the intercession of St. Philip the Evangelist, Philip the Deacon, read the New Testament and the Gospels and really just try and emulate in whatever way we can the Church of the New Testament and be Christians that look like that. It is possible. The Holy Spirit has not changed. It's the same Holy Spirit then that lives and dwells in us now, that guides the church now. We just need to have um, not a box-checking mentality, but a thinking-out-of-the-box mentality that allows the Holy Spirit to do new and incredible things that really aren't new, but that are very, very, very old, but may be just the new and refreshing thing that we need so desperately. So, That is my offering to you. I hope it inspires you. I hope it inspires you to dive into the word, to live your faith passionately, to recognize, you know, it's not about activity and all the things that we do. It's about who we are as church, the mentality we have when we encounter Jesus Christ in any other person before us. And we extend to them that community that everyone had all things in common. They all provided for one another's needs. Let's create it. Let's get to work. Thank you for listening. I hope this episode was of benefit to you. Please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. Uh, Pray for me as I continue to pray for you. And until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. God bless.